Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like scabs, fleas, and eccentricities. Oh, Sam, you're a poet and you don't know it. I think we should do the history of fleas or eccentricities. Yeah. Uh, Or cats, bats, and hats, mats, flats, and plats. Splats, frats, and odrats. We could just go on and on with the rhyming. However, that would digress monstrously, as always, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of perfume is in fact all about memory, squid beaks, the Reformation, cat, napalm, and the plague? Or that the history of gloves, <laughs> we'd return to gloves, is all about the Holy Roman Empire. It's about gift-giving. It's about chimneys. It's poisoning. It's about manliness. It's about leather. It's about... Oh, my God, I get so excited about gloves. Um, it's about. It's basically the history of everything. Everything can come down to the history of gloves. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I enjoyed your introduction, as always, James. And uh, I think the history of Odrat... Um, which is the, we talked about the history of doing the history of losing things last week, and um, oh, we did. We, we didn't. Yes. Well, it wasn't a title of the podcast, but it came up as a theme, and I think we might do that. And Odrat is great because we can do mistakes as well. I'd love yes. to do that. That's fantastic. Losers, Lo- losers, and mistakes. Yes, <laughs> losers. Let's do that. Losers. Okay, I'm, I'm looking on. Stand by, everyone. This is history in the making. I'm writing down Mis- losers, uh, <laughs> mistakes. And losing things, I think those fleas and eccentricities should be up there, and and friends. Oh my god! Well, that's like ten. Okay. Yes. Well, maybe we should drunks. Maybe we should binge and just do 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 a whole load. Uh, yes. You're probably I wondering who is talking to you, though, uh, our dear listeners. If you if you're new listeners, hello, welcome to our our wonderful podcast. The man not sitting opposite me. We're not in a recording studio because we're in lockdown. Let's just say that if history was the rotting leg wound of an injured soldier. <laughs> He would be the hungry maggot cleaning out the decrepit flesh of corruption, the gangrenous filth of uncritical thinking, the slimy infected juices of biased writing and propaganda, exposing only the healthy tissue of the past with its many fleshy (laughs) stories to tell. Here's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello. Willis, you're on fire. (laughs) I'm I'm embarrassed to be in your company, so... (laughs) So good are your are your introductions. Well, the man not sitting opposite me because he's in his lair. Uh, I don't think in his shed. I think actually inside uh, with social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say that if he 
were a fisherman of history baiting up his line to catch an enormous historical factual fish, then his snackerel of choice would only be a great big fat juicy maggot. Yes, you've guessed it, is the famous historical adventurer, the one and only, your friend and mine, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, we've come back to do more on maggots uh, because currently James and I are going through a phase in our histories of the unexpected life where we're finding a topic, but we're getting a bit overexcited about it and, and um, <laughs> doing loads and loads of work, which is uh, happened again with maggots. I wasn't expecting it to happen with maggots, but it has happened with maggots. Our first episode, we talked about filial piety in medieval China, believe it or not. We talked about feeding your mother-in-law maggots. Um, actually, everyone who's listening, just imagine imagine that just for a minute. Could you, could you imagine feeding the mother of your life partner a bowl of maggots? Well, that's what they got up to in medieval China. We talked about the 1970s. We talked about the twits. We talked about beards. Uh, we talked about maggoty cheese and um, the whole changing practice of what you eat and how you eat it. So actually, I think the last podcast was essentially on the history of eating maggots, which allows us in this one to be able to talk about all sorts of other uh, interesting and exciting aspects about the history of maggots. Now, when James and I started researching this, we, we both came across the use of maggots in medicine. Uh, and it's it's something that immediately sprung to mind. I don't know why. Maybe it was because I think there's a there's a scene in Gladiator. I think that's where I got it from. I don't know how I, I instinctively knew that maggots and med medicine were a thing. How about you, James? Yeah, I just I just did uh, a little bit of research uh, <laughs> and discovered it. Um, I yes, I sort of I sort of come across it in various places uh, that I'll talk about. Um, in, I mean, obviously not my own uh, experience, but uh, it's something that continues today. Um, and they're, they're, it's a, a therapy that went out of vogue for about 40 years and then came back in. And you can see it practiced in hospitals today. Uh, and maggots are contained in, in what a little bit like a, a tea bag and inserted into wounds to, to sort of chew away at the um, at, at the decay. I wanted to go in a in a completely different, sort of slightly tangential uh, direction at first, um, if you will indulge me. Before we get on to that, do I have your permission? Yes. Excellent. So this was a sort of slightly uh, tangential thing, um, and it was inspired by our talk in the last episode, which was about eating maggots and maggots and cheese, and. It takes us to the world of a 16th century heretic and probably the most brilliant book uh, that I think has been written uh, in history, or one of the most brilliant books. And, and it's Carlo Ginzburg's The Cheese and the Worms, which reconstructs the world of an Italian miller called Minocchio. And Cheese and Maggots is part and parcel of the way in which this man describes his cosmography, so the sort of spiritual world around him. And he's a really interesting character, uh, this guy, because he comes from a sort of, he's fairly low down the social scale. We're not talking about a, a priest here or a, uh, a sort of an aristocrat. This is a man who had a range of books uh, that he had access to. And what it allows us to do is to is to recreate not only the sort of literary world, the literate world uh, in 16th century 
Italy, but also the oral world, the world of sort of gossip and and talking to each other that led to this sort of heretic, these heretical beliefs. And what happens is uh, Minocchio is brought before the the Inquisition uh, and he is he's questioned um, and it's the response to some of his questions that leads to us the connection between the cheese the cheese and the worms and to maggots and in replying to his questioners uh, and at first he's sort of quite at ease with the way in which he he thinks about he he, he opens up and in a sense he's got a sort of captive captive audience for his views and he writes or he doesn't write but the 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 um recorders have written down what he said uh, he says i have said that in my opinion all was chaos that is earth air water and fire were mixed together and out of that bulk a mass formed so he's talking about creation just as cheese is made out of milk and worms appeared in it and these were the angels the most holy majesty decreed that these should be God and the angels, and among that number of angels there was also God, he too having been created out of that mass at the same time, and he was named Lord with four captains, Lucifer, Michael, Gabriel and Raphael, that Lucifer sought to make himself Lord equal to the king, who was the majesty of God, and for this arrogance God ordered him driven out of heaven with all his host and company, and this God later created Adam and Eve and people in great number to take the places of the angels who had been expelled. And as this multitude did not follow God's commandments, he sent his son, whom the Jews seized and was crucified. So in a sense, this is this is entirely blasphemous during this period. It's against the sort of traditional teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And he's accused of being diabolically inspired, that the influence of the devil was upon him. And what we have here is an isolated, heretical individual. He's not. This is not a sort of heretical community like Montaigu that we've talked about in the past. And what we see here is a, a body of unorthodox religious ideas existing within a Roman Catholic society. Now, Minocchio is his nickname. His name is, uh, is Domenico uh, Scandella, and he lived between 1532 to around 1599 or, or 1600. He's a miller, and he spends most of his life in a small hill town in the Fruili uh, called Monterreal, which is part of the Venetian Republic. And he's very much a, a loner, um, he's very much a, a loner, um, but also quite sort of part of the world as well. Um, and writing of he, the mill, um, he Ginsberg describes the mill as a place of meeting of social relations in a world that was predominantly closed and static. So think of it like a sort of an alehouse in 17th century England, for example. It was a place for the exchange of ideas. And millers were an occupational group exceptionally receptive to new ideas and inclined to propagate them. So in other words, these millers are prominent in 
heretical sects and throughout the medieval period and throughout the, the 16th century among Anabaptists. So what we have then is the sort of is the context of his um, of, of his world and the way in which he comes up with these kinds of ideas that are outside of the sort of traditional views of the Christian church. And the interrogation that we have of him is 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 also printed at the time. Uh, Minocchio, as I've said, is a is a loner. Uh, he's somebody who's very sort of full of himself. He knows in some ways that his ideas, his thoughts were dangerous, and he loves talking about them to this um, to the judges, uh, the inquisitors who are and and really they're quite sort of they're quite struck by by his ideas, quite shocked by them. What's fascinating is that we're able, through this Inquisition, to piece together his reading. Not that the, necessarily that the texts themselves survive, because, of course, archives wouldn't be kept um, of somebody like that. But you can piece it together through the things that he's saying. Uh, he had a copy of the Bible in, in vernacular, uh, for example, you know, so in in Italian. He also had a copy of a medieval Catalan chronicle. Um, he had a, he had several other religious books. He had an anonymous 15th century poem. He had an Italian translation of the Book of Travels attributed to Sir John Mandeville. Um, all sorts of things like that. He had a copy of uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. Um, and he also had an unidentified book which was believed to be uh, an Italian translation of the Quran, although that's slightly uh, disputed at this time. But one of the things that when we're thinking about how he reads is that he's not simply getting his ideas from these books. Um, so he's not sort of reading them openly. What he's doing is he's going to these books for confirmation of ideas and convictions that were already firmly entrenched, as Ginberg says, that his reading is one-sided and arbitrary. In other words, he's going there to have his ideas proven. Um, and so one of the problems that you're, that you're confronted with is where then does he get these sort of heretical ideas from? And what this does is it drives us back onto the the cultural and oral world in which in which he lived and what you can argue is that actually when you look at that there is a deep rooted sort of cultural strata that existed throughout 16th century italian society that he was um he was susceptible to and that he was sort of he was soaking up and if you have a look at the kinds of heretical ideas that are floating around throughout the medieval period we see in Montaigu two and a half centuries earlier, we see in the Lollards in the 15th century in England, we also see bursting out in the 1640s in England when censorship breaks down. The things that they are all rejecting are the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, the sacrifice of the cross, the denial of the immortality of the soul, the existence of a local heaven or hell, of the virgin birth or of the sanctity of marriage. And Minocchio is hostile 
uh, to Latin as a language of a privileged class and thought that holy scripture has been invented to deceive man. So he basically has all sorts of sort of ideas kind of coming around here. Um, and Ginsberg argues that essentially what we have is the existence of an oral culture that was the patrimony not only of Minocchio, but also of a vast segment of 16th century society. Its beliefs were loosely formulated and varied from place to place, but evidence for existence is very strong. And what Ginsberg argues is basically that what we have is a peasant culture that existed in its own right and was not merely the cast-off ideas of higher culture. So this is a brilliantly fascinating book to look at. It's a, it's a micro-history. So although it is uh, a really detailed study of one individual, what he's saying is that this is actually representative of something much more broadly. And he's dealing with very, very big ideas. Essentially, what, it, what he's arguing is that, um, that um, for Minocchio, between himself and the printed page, there was a filter that emphasised um, not only the printed page, but also an oral tradition. Um, so to bring us back to the cheese and the worms at the beginning, in other words, the what he's arguing there, this idea that, that things were created rather like, you know, worms or maggots appearing in cheese is actually the way that the world and creation was made. <laughs> there we are. Oh, wow. slightly, slightly tangential thing, but but basically it's about it's the way in which cheese and worms are connected to creation, and then it is the the sort of microcosmic world of an Italian miller who is literate and has access to books, but also has this sort of rich oral culture that generates ideas that are heretical, that are separate from the Orthodox Catholic Church, Very which leads to him getting getting into trouble. Tour de force, James. Well done. You've taken us from cheese to to uh, to, to heresy, heresy. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, I just, but it's a really interesting theme as well, like the the the, the about life gen generating of life and, and the way that things are created, because there is a really important aspect to the history of maggots, which which links directly. To that, and it's all to do with the theory of spontaneous generation. I don't know if this is something you you came across, but um, it, it's the belief that living organisms could form without descent from other similar organisms, and it was something that existed for centuries and centuries and centuries. So um, this is a little quote from um, Aristotle, his History of Animals, uh, about three hundred BC. Now, there is one property that animals are found to have in common with plants. For some, plants are generated from the seed of plants, whilst other plants are self-generated through the formation of some elemental principle similar to a seed. And of these latter plants, some derive their nutriment from the ground, whilst others grow inside other plants. So, with animals, some spring from parent animals according to their kind, whilst others grow spontaneously and not from kindred stock. And of these instances of spontaneous generation, some come from putrefying earth or vegetable matter, as is the case with a number of insects, while others are spontaneously generated in the inside of animals out of the secretions of their several organs. 
So a very, uh, very clear and good example there from 300 BC of spontaneous generation. Um, now, that carried on. It was believed this is another uh, description from the 12th century, 1187, from Geraldus Cambrensis's Topographica Hiberniae. Um, it's slightly different, this, but it's also interesting. Um, and he's talking about uh, here we are. nature produces uh, Bernacke is talking about against nature in the most extraordinary way. They are like marsh geese, but somewhat smaller. They are produced from fir timber tossed along the sea and are at first like gum. All right. I just bear in mind what I've just said. He's essentially saying that a type of goose is produced from driftwood. Right. Afterwards, they hang down by their beaks as if they were a seaweed attached to the timber and are surrounded by shells in order to grow more freely. Having thus in process of time being clothed with a strong coat of feathers, they either fall into the water or fly freely away into the air. They derive their food and growth from the sap of the wood or from the sea by a secret and most wonderful process of alimentation. I have frequently seen with my own eyes more than a thousand of these small bodies of birds hanging down on the seashore from one piece of timber enclosed in their shells and already formed. They do not breed and lay eggs like other birds, nor do they ever hatch any eggs, nor do they seem to build nests in any corner of the earth. You'll be wondering, James, why this matters and what on earth it has got to do with maggots but it absolutely (laughs) does have a great deal to do with maggots so up to the 17th century this firm belief in uh, spontaneous regeneration in in geese being born from driftwood uh, is really important so along comes mr francesco reddy in 1665 and he is a Italian scientist and he firmly believes that this this understanding of spontaneous generation that life can come from inanimate uh, matter or unassociated objects is is untrue and he he rejects this idea and sets up an experiment and what he does this is where we come to it James Francesco Reddy what he does is he places fresh meat in open containers and what happens is that the rotting meat attracts flies and the meat is soon swarming with maggots so then he does he takes some jars which are covered so that the flies can't get in and that means that no maggots are produced on the meat um then to answer the objection that um the cover ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
which was stopping the flies getting it, also cut off fresh air, which was believed to be necessary from, for spontaneous generation. What he does then is he covers the jars with a type of porous gauze, which allows um, uh, air and light in. So instead of having an airtight cover. And then he manages to prove uh, that flies are attracted to the smell of the rotting meat. They cluster on the gauze and then the gauze itself is soon swarming with the maggots, but the meat itself remained free from maggots. So his entire conclusion of this, very simple but very effective, he proved that flies are necessary to produce flies. And thereby, he managed. He was one of the earliest people to um, to actually come up with a a scientific experiment to disprove the belief in um, in in spontaneous generation. And what I think is so fascinating about it is he did it in 1665. It's really not that long ago. It's all relative. It's barely it's barely history. Uh, that that far barely history yeah. that far <laughs> that far ago. Well, I want to take us in a slightly different before we get to. Um, before we get to thinking about uh, maggots and medicine, I want to take us to the American Civil War. And I was reading a fascinating article uh, called The Historical Natural History, Insects and the Civil War by Gary L. Miller. Now, it's open access, so you can all have a look at that. Um, but I was intrigued by one of the opening paragraphs in which he justifies this study. And he says, Whole treatises are devoted to a single day of a particular civil war campaign. Others are devoted to tactics, accoutrements, soldier life, medicine, regimental histories, ghosts, and even sex. But none is devoted entirely to the role of insects in the civil war, despite the effects of insects on nearly every aspect of a war said to define us as Americans. And so he lays out his stall to then go through all kinds of insects. And there are um, there are fleas, there are bees, there are um, maggots and flies. And it's the, the aspects on flies that I want to to talk about uh, very briefly here because of as you've just said flies um, create flies and lead to uh, lead to lead to maggots and the um, American Civil War was absolutely festering with them uh, and there's one there's one um, there's one quote that I want to start with uh, which describes the fly the fly problem uh, this is a, a confederate a uh, soldier describing the fly problem in the in the camp. When we open our eyes in the morning, we find the canvas roofs and walls of our tents black with them. In other words, he's talking about flies here. It needs no morning reveille then to rouse the soldier from his slumbers. The tickling sensations about the ears, eyes, mouth, nose, etc., caused by the microscopic feet and inquisitive suckers of an army numerous as the sands of the sea, sure will awaken a regiment of men from innocent sleep to wide-awake profanity more promptly than the near beat of the alarming drum. And another Confederate soldier writes, um, I get vexed at them and commence killing them, but as I believe forty come to every one's funeral, 
I have given it up as a bad job. Now, in order to understand why there are so many flies and therefore maggots, because after all, this is a podcast about maggots, I just want to give some sort of background to uh, the Civil War and some of the, the context and details and the kind of conditions that lead to uh, this sort of infestation by by flies and other insects. And one of the things that you've got to think about is transportation here. Um, and yes, there's river transport, there are trains, there, you know, people walk on their own two feet, but they are dependent for transportation upon thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of animals, horses, mules and oxen. And of course, these breed flies. They bring flies along with them. Um, the total number of horses uh, and mules that begin their wilderness campaign was 56,499, so almost 60,000. And they're accompanied by ambulances and wagons. And, and it's also thought that each of these had six mule teams with them. So you can just imagine the the sort of the quantity of, you know, animals and excrement and everything that that, that accompanies these. Um, the other thing to think about is not only the is not only this, but it's also just the detritus, so the rubbish that is left behind after a ton of people come through it. The other thing I forgot to say is also on top of these uh, animals for transportation, you've also got animals for food. And there's an estimated eight to 10,000 head of cattle uh, during this period that just sort of accompany the army in order to feed them. The other thing I wanted to go on to talk about was the just the untidiness of, you know, soldiers, you know, going along, literally throwing things around behind them anything that you didn't want you discard it you didn't want your a particular item of clothing or a personal item it was too heavy it was too heavy or too you know dirty you'd leave it behind you uh, and there's a description of soldiers camps uh, that was written by uh, a historian in 1966 few recruits bothered to use the slit trench latrines and those who did usually forgot to shovel dirt over the feces and most urinated just outside the tent and after sundown in the street. Garbage was everywhere. Rats abounded and dead cats and dogs turned up in the strangest places. The emanations of slaughtered cattle and kitchen offal together with the noxious, with the noxious effluvia from the seething latrines and infested tents produced an olfactory sensation which has yet to be duplicated in the Western Hemisphere. As for water, and seldom was there enough, any source would do in the early camps. Frequently it was so muddy and fetid, the men held their noses when they drank the stuff. In many instances, the heavy rains washed faecal material directly into the supply with disastrous consequences. Now, of course, these are brilliant breeding habitats for filth and flies, particularly during uh, the summer months. And flies are potential vectors for cholera, diarrhoea, dysentery and typhoid. And of course, they were common ailments uh, throughout 
uh, the, the, the civil war, dysentery and diarrhea in particular. And of course, that led to flies not only as a vector for the transmission of those pathogens, but also uh, that was a, it was a sort of vicious, vicious cycle because all that waste and mess and excrement everywhere would then, of course, lead to more and more flies. Um, and uh, another quote from uh, a Confederate soldier um, talked about the, the uh, a cure for bowel problems uh, during this period. I, with a number of others, were sufferers from camp diarrhoea, as it was called, and up to that time we had no cure. So entering the battle, I had quite a great fear that something disgraceful might happen and it was somewhat uppermost in my mind. But to my surprise, the excitement or something else had effected a cure. I inquired of some others and they reported a cure. In other words, uh, you know, there, there were real problems with actually controlling uh, your bowel movements. People were given, um, people were given uh, pills uh, during this period, pills of mercury, salts, turpentine, castor oil, which, of course, led to um, led to sort of cure for constipation but of course that had its own sort of particular problems um also burying the dead you know was a was a problem during the war and particularly in again in the warmer months and flies um, were everywhere and dead bodies became infested with maggots uh, there's another um, uh, soldier who says in the battle of the dead on this particular part of the field the 130th regiment by reason of having incurred the displeasure of its brigade commander was honored in the appointment of an undertaker in chief the weather was phenomenally hot and the stench from the hundreds of black bloated decomposed maggoty bodies exposed to a torrid heat for three days after the battle was a sight truly horrid and beggaring all power of verbal expression. Um, so it's, and there's another um, description here from 1864, a civilian who kept a diary uh, during Gettysburg. I assisted in feeding of some of the severely wounded when I perceived that they were suffering on account of not having their wounds dressed. I did not know whether I could render any assistance in that way, but I thought I would try. I procured a basin and water and went to a room where there were seven or eight, some shot in the arms, others in the legs, and one in his back and another in the shoulder. I asked if anyone would like to have his wounds dressed. Some one replied, there is a man on the floor who cannot help himself and would better see to him. Stooping over him, I asked for his wound and he pointed to his leg. Such a horrible sight I have never seen and hope never to see again. His leg was all covered with maggots. And it's not only the, the people who are, you know, who are, you know, full of maggots. It's also the food. So the kinds of rations that they were uh, eating got contaminated with uh, maggots uh, and weevils and all sorts of sort of things that you really wouldn't want to that you wouldn't want to to eat. Um, and you talked or before about the about the the experiments with leaving meat out, but actually the rations were infected uh, with with maggots. So the Daily Union marching ration was for a pound and a quarter 
of fresh beef. And the problem was you wouldn't get the beef um, fresh at all. Uh, in order to eat it without maggots, you would basically need to have it killed and then uh, have it, you know, basically with the warm blood still in it. Oh. Because any time beyond that, and it was just foul and rank and just full of maggots. There's one soldier who, who muses, yesterday morning was the first time we had to carry our meal for the maggots always carried it till then. We have to have an extra guard to keep them from packing it clear off. And so you get this sort of sense. It's just awful. Another one describes uh, maggots and weevils in his hardtack. These weevils were, in my experience, more abundant than the maggots. They were a little slim brown bug, an eighth of an inch in length, and were great bores on a small scale, having the ability to completely riddle the hardtack. I believe they never interfered with the hardest variety. Um, we live so mean here, the hard bread is all worms and the meat stinks like hell, and rice two or three times a week and worms as long as your finger. I liked rice once, but God damn the stuff now. Another, we found 32 worms, maggots, etc. in one cracker the day before yesterday. We do not find much fault, however, but eat them without looking as a good way to present the trouble. Another one says, Hardtack was not so bad an article of food, even when traversed by insects, as may be supposed. Eaten in the dark, no one could tell the difference between it and hardtack that was untenanated. Untenanated. In other words, you don't, it doesn't have maggots. It was so common an occurrence for no man to find the surface of his pot swimming with weevils after breaking up hardtack in it, which had come out of the fragments only to drown, but they were easily skimmed off and left no distinct flavour behind. If a soldier cared to do so, he could expel the weevils by heating the bread in the fire. The maggots did not budge in that way. Oh, wow. yuck. So there we are. I think that's a, a brilliant uh, insect history <laughs> of the American Civil War. Very good. Um, I came across the, something about the American Civil War. It was when the first um, therapeutic use of maggots happened in the Civil War. Ah. So it's, what a lovely segue. Yeah, John Fournay Zacharias, a Confederate medical officer during the war, is, is believed to be the first physician to intentionally expose his patients' festering wounds to maggots. So there we go. There are um, all sorts of other, other examples um, from history. Um, my point is you can do a history of when maggots were used to clean wounds. Um, I found uh, something from uh, the Napoleonic eras in the um, when Napoleon was fighting in Egypt, just after his invasion of Egypt, when uh, uh, the French government had tried to get rid of Napoleon because he was so he was so ambitious, they thought they'd sack him off to India, um, um, and he would get there via Egypt. Anyway, um, Baron Dominique Jean Larray observed that only blue fly maggots removed dead tissue from the soldiers. Uh, I found a previous description from the 16th century, the Battle of Saint Quentin, 1557. Um, this is the chief surgeon to France's. Uh, Charles the Ninth and also Henry the Third, um, he realised that maggot-infested patients often recovered than others. Uh, a really interesting history. History there. The first experiments with blowfly maggots happened in the in nineteen twenty nine. 
This is by uh, William Baer, who was uh, an American orthopaedic surgeon who who witnessed maggoty goings on in the First World War in the trenches. And he um, used maggots to heal people with osteomyelitis, essentially a kind of bone infection. Um, so there we go. And it's still used today, yeah, as you mentioned it, earlier on, it, uh, for particularly for people who, are, who, are, who have open wounds, um, which are resistant to... Uh, to, to uh, well, they're drug resistant, basically. You can't treat them, um, treat them with modern modern medicine. But maggots will do the no, job. Absolutely, and you can find it back in in antiquity, and, and also in the Old Testament, in the Bible, uh, in the story about Job, uh, where Job states that his body is clothed with worms and clods of dust, his skin broken and loathsome. Um, but one of the most extraordinary examples that I came across was of a young girl uh, who came down in a in a, a an airplane crash. Now, this is a woman called Julianne uh, Kupka, uh, who was born in uh, on the tenth of October, nineteen fifty four, and she's. Uh, uh, a German Peruvian mammologist uh, nowadays, and she basically was brought up uh, living in Peru. Her parents uh, were German and worked for the Natural History Museum in Lima, and they went out to sort of work in the in the rainforest. And she goes out uh, and is not sort of uh, schooled traditionally, but is homeschooled. And is brought up essentially as a jungle child, and she learns various sort of survival techniques. And she graduates uh, school um, and is taking a flight home uh, on the nineteenth or twentieth of December, uh, nineteen seventy-one. And her father doesn't want her to go. Uh, it's a really dodgy airline; they couldn't get a, another flight, and the flight. Uh, basically gets struck by lightning. And she is aged about 14 at the time, I think. And she falls almost two miles, still strapped into her seat, and survives. Um, it's a Lancer Lockheed L188 Electra, uh, those of you who are interested in this. And when she, when she falls, she is... I mean, as you can imagine, really badly damaged. Um, she's, you know, she's got terrible sort of injuries uh, to herself. Um, and she has uh, a broken collarbone, a gash to her left leg, her right arm, her right eye has swollen shut. Um, but nonetheless, she survives. And there is an account of it more than 40 years later where she describes precisely what happened to her in that in that crash scene uh, in 1998 it was christmas eve 1971 and everyone was eager to get home we were angry because the plane was 7 hours late suddenly we entered into a very heavy dark cloud my mother was anxious but i was okay i liked flying Ten minutes later, it was obvious that something was very wrong. There was very heavy turbulence, and the plane was jumping up and down. Parcels and luggage were falling from the locker. There were gifts, flowers, and Christmas cakes flying around the cabin. When we saw lightning around the plane, I was scared. My mother and I held hands, but we were unable to speak. Other passengers began to cry and weep. 
After about 10 minutes, I saw a very bright light on the outer engine on the left. My mother said very calmly, that is the end. It's all over. Those were the last words I ever heard from her. The plane jumped down and went into a nosedive. It was pitch black and people were screaming. Then the deep roaring of the engines filled my head completely. Suddenly the noise stopped and I was outside the plane. I was in free fall, strapped to my seat bench and hanging head over heels. The whispering of the wind was the only noise I could hear. I felt completely alone. I could see the canopy of the jungle spinning towards me. Then I lost consciousness and remember nothing of the impact. Later, I learned that the plane had broken into pieces about two miles above the ground. I woke the next day and looked up into the canopy. The first thought I had was, I survived an air crash. I shouted out for my mother, in, but I only heard the sounds of the jungle. I was completely alone. I'd broken my collarbone, had some deep cuts on my legs, but the, my injuries weren't serious. I realised later that I had ruptured a ligament in my knee, but I could walk. Before the crash, I'd spent a year and a half with my parents on their research station only 30 miles away. I learned a lot about life in the rainforest, that it wasn't too dangerous. It's not the green hell that the world always thinks. I could hear the planes overhead searching for the wreck, but it was a very dense forest and I couldn't see them. I was wearing a very short sleeveless mini dress and white sandals. I'd lost one shoe, but I kept the other because I'm very short sighted and had lost my glasses. So I used that shoe to test the ground ahead of me as I walked. Snakes are camouflaged there and they look like dry leaves. I was lucky I didn't meet them or maybe I just didn't see them. And then she goes on to describe how she she descri she describes um, the rest of her time. She describes fee seeing uh, a dead body, touching it with a with a stick, uh, and saw the woman's toenails were painted. My mother never polished her nails. Um, by the tenth day, I couldn't stand properly, and I drifted along the edge of a larger river. I had found I felt so lonely, like I was in a parallel universe far away from any human being. I thought I was hallucinating when I saw a really large boat. When I went to touch it and realised it was real, it was like an adrenaline shot. But then I saw there was a small path into the jungle where I found a hut with a palm leaf roof, an outboard motor and a litre of gasoline. And here's the maggot bit. I had a wound on my upper right arm. It was infested with maggots about one centimetre long. I remember our dog had the same infection and my father had put kerosene in it. So I sucked up the gasoline out and put it into the wound. The pain was intense as the maggots tried to get further into the wound. I pulled out about 30 maggots and was very proud of myself. I decided to spend the night there. The next day I heard the voices of several men outside. It was like hearing the voices of angels. So there we are, uh, a terrible uh, tragedy, but also a, a survival story. And a young girl brought up in the jungle, knowing the jungle craft and being able to treat her own maggoty wound Ooh. with kerosene. Well, when was that from? Isn't what, that amazing? What, what, what was that date? What was that from? The date of that was 1971. And she's um, 
remembering this years later, so 40 years later. Well, it's not surprised that something is stuck in her memory like that. Um, I tell you what, James, this podcast is going to stick in my memory with the wriggly maggotness of it all. Um, I hope you (laughs) you all enjoyed it. Um, Do please... uh, I tell you what, get in touch on Twitter and tell us whether you'd like us to do losers or mistakes or losing things, uh, fleas and eccentricities. If there's any of those you prefer, um, send us a tweet and um, and uh, or friends, yeah, or friends. or friends. Let us know what, what, and why, and then uh, we can we can read out your recommendations. Do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history, which I hope you all are, please listen to the Mariners Mirror podcast. We've got some really really exciting things coming up for you. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. You can check out everything that we are doing uh, on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We have a Patreon page uh, in these times of crisis. We're unable to tour and we have production costs that we need to maintain. And anything that you could give us would be very gratefully appreciated. We are also... Uh, signing books for Christmas. So if you want uh, a small book on the Tudors, on the Romans, on the Vikings, or on World War II, or in fact our big book, uh, get in touch and we can sign one of those and have it um, whizzing off to you within days. Yes, that would be great. Um, Thank you all so much for listening, guys. We'll be back to you next week with something fabulous. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.